I thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit moving upon every one of us to give give us the grace to, to give you our best ear, our full attention, our focus, that even now, the Holy Spirit helping us to get locked in and be good, fertile soil in our hearts and minds, our lives, as the living seeds of truth are spoken through me out into that good soil, watered by the Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. Let the winds of your spirit carry this out where it needs to get. And everything will be accomplished in and through this. It's God's will to be done. The Bible says the word will not return void, but will accomplish that which God has sent it forth to do. But, Lord, we know that the enemy tries to steal. So, Lord, we submit this unto you. We resist the devil. We bind anything right now that would try to hinder this word in any way from getting where it's supposed to or accomplishing what it's supposed to. We bind you in the name of Jesus. You will back off right now. And Lord, I thank you for your mighty angels that's clearing away any resistance or hindrance. And we thank you for the power of your word, Lord, that will cut through and Lord, pierce through into difficult places. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So as we're dealing with this tonight, I'm going to talk about, I'm in the historic revivals. I'm on part nine. It was some kind of a crazy typo. And one of these recent sermons where I end up saying we're on part something far away, but anyway, that was a typo. We're on part nine, and I'm going to deal with a little bit different subject. Uh, in the near future, I plan on talking about the revivals of the 40s and 50s, which has to do with the healings and miracles and the deliverance ministry, and the apostolic and prophetic, and we will get into that. But right now... I feel the Lord saying this sermon to us that we're going to look at impartation and a stirring, okay? So Romans chapter 1, verse 11, the Apostle Paul wrote this. Now, Romans was one of the churches he planted, and he said this to them. He said, I long to see you. We know he did three missionary journeys. He would travel these different churches and visit them, and he said, I long to see you that I might impart, everybody say impart, some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. Now, I looked up the word established in the Greek, and it implies to, that established means take you to a place of strength. Well, that's interesting. It's like you're not there, but something will be imparted to you that will strengthen you that will take you to strength. That's, in, that's very interesting. Now, a lot of people read over this and they just think it's some kind of a nice little greeting. There's a deep meaning in this scripture. Paul's saying, when I come as a spiritual father and I impart something, I lay my hands on you and there's an impartation into that church, what you receive being imparted into you will begin to strengthen you and take you to a place of being strong and established. Now, that's a powerful thing to say, isn't it? And so I'm going somewhere with this tonight, but I'm going to kind of dovetail a little bit into Pentecostal roots and then come back into impartation and talk a little bit about pilgrimages, but this is going to be a little bit different sermon. So let me come back to impartation. I want to take a moment to to talk about our Pentecostal roots. Now, here's the thing. The early Pentecostals, see, there was a holiness movement in the 1800s that, that we, we know about. We know about like the Quakers and different people that there was a holiness movement, people that, that were really set apart unto God and they believed in holiness. And that movement, holiness, was what kind of came together with what later brought in Pentecost, and those two streams kind of married, and that's what our Pentecostal heritage is out of, is out of the holiness and the Pentecostal movement. Now, let me tell you the roots of Pentecost. See, the early Pentecostals, I hope everybody will always remember this, because this really annoys me that some Pentecostal churches have gotten away from tongues and Pentecost. Let me tell you, our Pentecostal moms and dads that gone on before us in the early 1900s paid a very dear price for us to have what we have today. They were persecuted. Some of them were so persecuted that they lost jobs. They were mocked. Uh, it, it was rough on some of them. And not only persecuted from the world, but I'm talking about persecuted from the church. 
And so let me tell you how the, the Pentecostal movement, see, there were always, in these great revivals that we've, that we've studied up to this point, there's always been some tongues that were in the manifestations. They were there. In the Second Great Awakening Cambridge, they reported some spoken tongues. But what happened here was really interesting. In 1900, as it was changing over to 1901, I'm talking about literally like December, January, right there at the beginning of 1901, there was a man by the name of Charles Parham. And what he had done is he, he had had a church and he was ministering and he was, God had healed him. He was very much believing in the apostolic, like Book of Acts Christianity is what I call it. He called it the apostolic faith, but it was the same reference here. He was saying God still heals today. And he believed that God baptized in the Holy Spirit today. Yet he himself had not experienced it. But he was kind of on a cutting edge of this. And he was betrayed. Some people betrayed him and they uh, took members away from him and all that. And he said this in his journal. He said, I didn't want to fight with them. I just let them go. I just forgave everything and let everything go. And because of his heart to do that, his wife wrote about this. And she said when he really let everything go like that and just trusted God, there was a, a... a house that was built kind of in the form of a castle. And there was a really wealthy man by the last name Stone. And he built that thing, but he wasn't able to finish it. And so it became nicknamed Stone's Folly. Well, it was sold for an extremely cheap price. And because Parham had forgiven all that stuff, let everything go, there were some other people that came together with him financially, and he was able to purchase Stone's Folly. And so what he did was he named it uh, the Bible school of that. I forget what he named it, the Bible school. I'm sorry, but he made it into a Bible school. And he believed there he was teaching these people that joined the Bible school about healing. And they began to study out some of these deeper truths at that time, like the baptism in the Holy Spirit. He told them, and I read this, he said, I want all the students here, I want you to study what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and what is the evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit? And they went and studied it out. And he said, I'm going to come back, and we're going to come together, and I want to hear your thoughts. Every one of them said tongues. And so he said, well, we need to believe God for it then. Well, there was a wonderful lady, a precious lady in the Bible school, and her name was Agnes Osman, and she said, I want you to lay hands on me and believe that God baptized me in the Holy Spirit. Well, Parham was nervous about doing it for one reason, because he himself had not spoken tongues. And so he said, well, he was thinking to himself, well, why would I pray for this lady? But nonetheless, he said, well, let's believe God. And so he lays hands and prays over her. They said that her face began to shine, that something came on her, and he said it looked almost like a halo formed around the top of her head. And she began to speak in other tongues. And that sparked a faith in all those that were there in the Bible school. They thought, dear Lord, here she is speaking in tongues. She's baptized in the Holy Spirit. So we can receive this if God will do it for her. So they began to earnestly seek the Lord. And they set aside time right there at the January of 1901. They set aside time of prayer and some fasting and seeking God like the upper room. In fact, they said in there that they, they went up to the upper part of the Stone's Folly called the Upper Room is what they, they named it. And they were in there praying. And Parham said he had left and come back. And he said it was like a holy visitation. He said the atmosphere of the place was charged. He said the people there began to speak in other tongues. He said that they saw literally little tongues of fire on some of them. He said the presence of God was awesome in that place. And this was the beginning of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, as far as the revival of that, okay, which really culminated at Azusa. But why was it different since there were other speaking in tongues manifestations in other revivals? Why was this different? And I'll tell you why. God planned this just exactly the way it happened. Because it happened among the people that it did, and they were Bible school students, they, were, they made this into a doctrine. That was the difference. So they believed that the baptism in the Holy Spirit was for today, that it was a fundamental doctrine that we should believe in right now today. We should teach it as such. 
and they established it in the, it, today we have the 16 fundamental truths that major denominations like the Assemblies and Church of God, etc., adhere to these basic, but one of the basic fundamental truths taught today is the baptism in the Holy Spirit for all who will believe. They paid a dear price for it. And so when revival broke out in Topeka, it ended up that Parham, and I read in one place that he got sick, and he stayed with some friends in Houston to get well, and then they urged him to teach there at a, like a Bible school. So when he was there in Houston, that's where William Seymour ended up coming and sitting in the hall and listening to the lectures. In Parham, there was segregation laws. Parham was nice enough to open the door and welcome him in the class that way. That You know, he didn't have to do that. And Seymour was humble enough to sit out there and listen. And Seymour didn't get baptized in the Holy Spirit right then. But he, man, something burned in him. He believed it. He believed healing was for today. He believed what Parham was teaching. And so Seymour was touched with that revival fire from Topeka. He goes to Los Angeles and tried to preach at a church. And that church, he preached on Acts chapter 2. How many knows when you open your Bible and you read the Bible and people run you out, there's something wrong with those people? Amen? So Seymour opens his Bible, just reading Acts chapter 2, and says, you know what, this is for today. And they ran him out of there and said, don't come back. So he ends up at Bonnie Bray Street. And he's at that house there, and he's praying for five to seven hours a day, I mean, desperate for a move of God. He himself wanted to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And others began to join him. There was both blacks and whites meeting there, but there was maybe around a dozen people, predominantly African-American, and they were seeking God, and the Holy Spirit fell. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They were speaking in tongues. People began to come to that house, and it got, it got so full, the porch collapsed, and they had to figure out something, so they ended up on the Asuda Street mission. I know you already know all of this, but that's the roots. And I wanted to emphasize that they had to pay a dear price. They were persecuted by the religious. And Seymour and them, they put up with a lot of stuff. I mean, even religious leaders of some prominence of that time were saying things about Azusa Street like it's the last vomit of Satan or insanities worthy of a madhouse or emphatically not of God. Stay away. And they, they were persecuting this. You have to be willing to pay a price to go deeper in God. I've always believed this. If you look at the tabernacle of Moses, the outer court is big, and it's just the blood and the water. It's salvation. There's a, that's big. That courtyard's large. There's a lot of people that live in the outer court with natural sunlight. And they, but there's a lot of people that never go deeper than just a salvation experience. When you go beyond the outer court into the holy place, it's much smaller. And it's only lit by the menorah. That's divine revelation. The bells that are chiming in there on the garments is the tongues and the gifts. And it's a place where you're going deeper in God, but it's smaller. Fewer people are going to go in there. And to go even deeper than just a Pentecostal experience and really go deep in the glory and to the depth of revival, the Holy of Holies, that's even yet smaller than the holy place. The deeper you're going to go in God, the fewer people are going to go with you. The crowd is going to start thinning out. And there's an increase of persecution because the people don't understand and the devil doesn't want you to go deeper in God. And so there's also spiritual lines of inheritance, which is extremely obvious. I mean, something from Parham ended up going to Seymour and then from Seymour to those that read Azusa. From Azusa, it went to all over the world. I mean, John G. Lake took the revival to Africa. F.F. Bosworth preached the revival. I mean, it just, it spread all over. And I know that I've taught on this already, but there were people that would be baptized in the Holy Spirit and they would have a certain dialect. And some of them, Parham recorded that some of them spoke in, in human languages that they didn't even know and at times even would just write out things in that language. He said that some of them, when they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, couldn't even speak in English for a couple of days. They could only speak in the tongue God gave them. But it was a sign and a wonder. And when they received a certain dialect, they felt maybe there was a call to that part of the world. And that's actually how Pentecost spread to the nations. And I believe there was something to that. But I love that they formulated doctrine. 
It, this is what's important. So one of the, the deep doctrines, those that's been at Pentecost very long, some of those, the old timers will very much recognize what I'm about to say. But they believe that you were not just saved, but beyond salvation, there was sanctification. And to be filled with the Holy Spirit and healing. And so you'd hear a lot of the old timers praying, Lord, save them and sanctify them and baptize them in your spirit. See, this, was, this doctrine was formulated under Parham, and it passed to Azusa, and they taught it, and from Azusa, it went to the nations. Salvation, and then a subsequent work of being sanctified. I believe this doctrine. How many have been saved, and then after you were saved, God began to really clean you up, sanctify you by the power? The, Peter said the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. How many have experienced that? And then also, how many, after you were saved, later were baptized in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit, you spoke in tongues, and you experienced Pentecost? How many have experienced that? There's a lot of people. Okay, me too. And not only that, but they were big on healing. Now, with that said, what, was, what earmarked Azusa Street? It was people came there to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and to be healed. Those were the two major moves of God that took place at Azusa. And it was doctrine. They, they believed it as fundamental, basic doctrine that all of us should accept. And I agree with that. I believe that God heals today. And I believe that that is a sound doctrine to pray and believe him for healing right now. I also believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for today. But let me encourage you, don't despise the days of small beginnings and slow beginnings. Let me explain. So at Topeka, you know, Parham had gone through a lot, and he himself had believed for uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he had taught these things. And eventually, over time, they saw an outbreak of revival in their Bible school, but yet it took some time before it ended up breaking out at Azusa and then ultimately go to the nations. It kind of had slow beginnings and small beginnings, but by the time God was done, Pentecost spread to the nations. Does that make sense? Slow and small beginnings. And also, let me give you a few other examples. Moriah Chapel. When Evan Roberts had seen the vision, how many have ever had God speak to you or show you something you thought, man, it's imminent, it's about, and then whenever things took a little while, it can be frustrating. Well, we've all probably had that. Well, Evan Roberts saw whales lifted up, the hand of God touch it. He saw 100,000 souls. He was believing for a major revival. He goes back to Mariah Chapel, his home church, and he says, please let me speak. They let him speak after his prayer meeting, a handful of young people. He's preaching of his hard grounds. Slow beginnings. It seemed kind of dead, really, but there were a few that got saved, around maybe 12, that gave their life to the Lord, but it was slow, it was small beginnings, and it was difficult. And Evan said, well, let's keep going with this, because he had felt he heard from God, and so he kept preaching and kept ministering, and a little more, a little more, a little more, and pretty soon, after about six months, 100,000 people come to know the Lord. What would have happened if Evan preached once or twice at Moriah Chapel and got discouraged at how dead it was, how dry it was, and just a handful of people responded, and he would have said, well, maybe I didn't hear from God. What would have possibly happened? The revival maybe wouldn't have been everything that it became. Also, I think about the Isle of Hebrides. They, those precious elderly women prayed, those sisters, the, the around 7 to 12 men prayed in the barn, they sent for Duncan Campbell. He shows up. He preaches at a church there in Barvis, I believe. And as he's preaching, he's preaching on Matthew 25, the wise and foolish virgins, and it's dead. Yet they all heard from God. They're going to have revival. And Duncan is kind of discouraged. He's thinking, man, I came all the way here. And he's standing outside the church, and one of the elders had taken off his hat like this, and they were descending down the hill as they left the church. And he said, Brother Campbell, don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit is brooding. So he said, let's have them back again. They come back the next night. He preaches the wise and foolish virgins. One night was wise, the next night was foolish virgins. He preaches it again. The Holy Spirit begins to move. And then the Holy Spirit, they keep going. The Holy Spirit begins to move more, a little bit more. 
Pretty soon in the next two years before God was done, the whole of Lewis was shaken by the power of God. And countless people got saved. What would have happened if Duncan would have gave up in the early days? You see, God starts things, it seems historically, as I've studied it, small and slow. And also, what about the Red River Revival? Okay, so James McGreedy hears from God. He's preaching to his congregation. A few of them get saved. Then he says, let's get together with the others that he's pastored of. There was three of them. He began to get together with them. But this went on for a little while before God really started moving. They started sensing God's presence come in. And well, maybe we should do this again. And then pretty soon, by the time it got to Red River, the Holy Spirit fell. People start collapsing in mass, and they're thinking, man, God's really starting to move. So they kept going with it, and pretty soon it jumps over to Cambridge. Next thing you know, over the next couple years, it had been known now as the second great awakening of the United States of America. But what would have happened if James McGreedy said, well, the meetings are small and slow, and we're not seeing a lot going. I think that that may be a problem in today's modern church that people are so used to hype and things being hyped up. Don't get discouraged when things start small and slow. Maybe that's God's way of protecting it until it comes to maturity. I think about also in the Bible about impartation. Impartation is basically where what is on somebody's life from the Lord can be passed to another person. Now, this can happen through the laying on of hands, but it's, it can also just simply happen by being in a meeting with someone. Uh, it can happen by going to a location where God has moved very powerfully in the past and there's still something there in that location. But let me give you a few examples of this in the Scripture. When it was time, Jethro told Moses, he said, what you're doing is too much for any man. You need to get 70 elders and, and let them help you judge the people. And so God spoke to Moses and said, Jethro's right. And so he called the 70 elders, and the Holy Spirit that was on Moses came on the 70, and they began to prophesy. That's interesting, isn't it? What was on Moses came on them. So that was just a sovereign act of God doing that. But also, Moses, it says in Numbers 27, 18 through 23, that Moses laid his hands on Joshua, his successor, and the spirit on Moses came on Joshua. And then Joshua ultimately led the people. But there had to be that transference of the anointing. There was something on Moses. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And he needed to pass that to his successor. I think about there's some kind of a spiritual line of inheritance that went back, those that know of Leonard Ravenhill, but I'm not sure where he picked everything up. I read his biography, but he had received something, an impartation in his life at some point. But there was definitely a transference of that mantle, if you will, to Steve Hill. And many believe that, and that was connected to the Brownsville revival. And then from Steve to many others, I believe. But there's lines of inheritance that you can see it in, in many cases if you study revivals. I think about different moves of God. See, I think about Randy Clark, who was instrumental in the Toronto revival. A lot of people don't know this, but he had been mightily touched through John Wimber, Lonnie Frisbee, and that great revival that was going on in the 60s and 70s. That's, that revival impacted Randy Clark personally. God used them to pray for him. Then, um, at a later time, he was dry and desperate, crying out to God in a dark, uh, not a dark place, but a difficult, dry place. And he, out of desperation, he goes to the Rodney Howard Brown meetings back in 93, 94 that were just incredible. And I think he went actually to the one in Florida um, at, um, that took place. Anyway, the name's escaping me. But he went there, and he got prayer from Brother Rodney. And so after that, those streams come, come together in his life. And then he ends up going, John Arnott called him and said, I hear God's moving in your church. After you went to see Brother Rodney, would you come preach? And he said, well, I guess so. And he didn't feel like he really had any. 
He's like, I'll, yeah, I'll go preach, but I only have a couple sermons. I, I don't need to be away from my church very long. And he went there just thinking he was going to preach a couple meetings, go home. Next thing you know, the Holy Spirit fell hard in Toronto. And I mean, it was a deposit there. Are you seeing where, I want to show you that, and let me give you a few more examples. So John and Carol were desperate for revival, and they heard that God was moving in Argentina. So they were willing to even put the money on their credit card how many knows that you don't like to do that, to go to Argentina, and Claudio prays for them. They come back. They had been friends with Benny Hinn, but they come back, and then they wanted to have Randy come to their church, Randy Clark, and those streams were coming together in Toronto. Are you seeing what I'm saying? And I think about Steve, and I, I personally knew Steve Hill, and he told me this himself. He said that he was so desperate for a move of God, he had went to Carlos Anacondia's meetings. And while he was there, he, he made it to where he could meet him after the meeting behind uh, the tent and everything. And he said, would you please pray for me? And Carlos prays for him. He said, I fell out in the mud. But he said, I saw something in Carlos I wanted. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him when Carlos prayed for him. And then he said he was so desperate. He flew from Argentina to America because he knew somebody that knew somebody. He told me this himself. And he knew where Benny Hinn was staying at a hotel and he hijacks Benny on his way from a difficult meeting he was in to his room and says, would you pray for us? And Brother Benny, I heard him tell his side of the story. He said, I was so mad at the people I'd just come out of the meeting from. He said, I was in no mood to pray for nobody. And he said, all right, in Jesus' name like that. And he said, Steve and his friend flew backward and hit the ground. He said, well, dear Lord, I guess God touched him. And then he went to his room. Well, I'm talking about hunger here. And then Steve was so hungry, he, he was... Uh, on his, this is the story he tells at the, his first time to preach in the Brownsville Revival. He went to England and ended up staying with some friends and, and there at an Anglican church. God had fell. Randy Clark had preached there. And the, the pastor there, the vicar, was named Sandy Miller. And, and the Holy Spirit fell. And there were lines like a mile long. I mean, it made the news media. People were coming. And Steve was just, I mean, just so hungry. And he got his friends to line it up where he could go there and get prayer. He said that Sandy Miller prayed for him. He fell out. He felt just rivers coming through him. But do you see the streams here? I'm making a point. The impartation from the Argentine revival, the impartation of what God was doing through Benny Hinn's ministry, the impartation of what God was doing through that Toronto revival. Steve Hill was so hungry, God brought those impartations together in his life. And then he ends up at the Brownsville revival and that revival really broke out and affected the world. Is this making sense tonight? I'm talking about impartation. Probably one of the most famous in the scriptures is Elijah to Elisha. I mean, Elisha said to Elijah, I'm not going to leave you. It reminds me of the Ruth and Naomi story. I'm not leaving you. I'm staying with you, Elijah. I know you're leaving, but I'm staying with you to the end. And Elijah, and he said, well, what can I do for you? And he said, give me a double portion of what's on the spirit that's on you. Now, that's an awesome prayer, isn't it? And so this is what he said to him. He said, Elisha, he said, if you'll be with me when I go, you'll have it. And so they go from there to Gilgal, which is a place of dead religion. See, a lot of people, I've lost some people through dead religion that I've left dead religion, and they stayed there. Hello? Then they go to Bethel. That's the house of God. That's where the presence of God is. I've lost some people as I've gone into revival, and they didn't want to go with me. How many can say that? And then I went like them. I, he said from there they went to Jericho, the place of great spiritual warfare. I've lost some people through spiritual warfare. The devil turned friends to enemies, etc., etc. But I'm going on with God like Elisha. And Elisha followed him then to the Jordan. This is the Jordan's the place of receiving. It's the crossing over. And that's where the fiery chariot took up Elijah. And his tallit, his cloak fell to the ground. Elisha picks it up. He says, where's the Lord, the God of Elijah? And he struck the Jordan and it parted. And he put on his mantle. And the people that were watching said, dear Lord, the spirit of Elijah is on Elisha. And then from that point on, read the story. Elisha did everything Elijah did, but twice. Impartation. 
I think about also impartation from the apostles to the believers in Samaria, that Philip had went there and preached and said, you know, repent and be baptized. And so they all accepted the Lord there in Samaria, great revival. Even Simon the sorcerer got saved. <clears throat> but then Peter and John came. What happened? Y'all remember the story? Acts 8. Peter and John came and laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. They were filled and baptized in the Holy Spirit, spoke in tongues and prophesied. The Spirit of the Lord came upon them. But it came as Peter and John came and imparted that to them. And then also, what about the deacons in Acts 6, 5 through 6? Peter and them said, look, it's not good for us to spend all of our time like waiting tables and doing all this. We've got to devote ourselves to the Word of God and prayer. So choose some worthy men that would be like servants here, and we'll lay hands on them. And they did. And the apostles laid hands, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon them in power. There's a transference of the anointing. There's an impartation. It doesn't have to necessarily be the laying on of hands. What about Peter at Cornelius' house? The angel came to Cornelius, go get Peter. So they send for him. Peter has the vision, and he goes then to Cornelius' house. While he was preaching, the Holy Spirit fell, and the people there experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, spoke in other tongues, and those that were with Peter were shocked that they saw basically the same thing they saw in Acts chapter 2 in the upper room breaking out now at Cornelius' house among his family and friends. There was a transference. Peter had received something up in that upper room. And when he ministered, it fell where he ministered. And they received. And that actually happened to Barton Stone. This is a good transition here. What about pilgrimages? What about going somewhere to receive? Now, in my personal life, thank the Lord that I had the right people speaking to me because... You know, I, I could have ministers that were telling me, stay away from this and that and the other. But I was at Bible school, and I was ministering at a church at that time just as an intern, and I was helping out. And the pastor there had went to Brownsville and really got touched powerfully, and he told me, he said, you guys need to go if you can. But if you go, you need to stay for three or four days. Don't just go and come right back. Stay there. Make sure you get prayer. Thank God for that man. And so that was whenever I, I called my mom. It was like, a, you know, I was college student. I was broke. I said, hey, you want to take a road trip, Pensacola? And we, we did. We all went together and went down there. And thank God that's the story of when I went down and got prayer and got hit by the power and fell out and I was baptized in fire. And I still feel that fire in my life today. Pilgrimages. There's something about going where God is moving and receiving from the Lord. You know what I think the greatest hindrance to pilgrimages is? Pride. You know the voice of pride? Well, if God wants to touch me, he knows where I live. Well, you arrogant little thing, you. But you'd be surprised how many people have that attitude. And they miss the move of God. They're too prideful to go receive. So I think about in the Bible, what about Hannah? You remember? She had went to the tabernacle in Shiloh. What was the tabernacle? Where God's presence dwelled. That was where God dwelled. She went there humbly, and she really prayed there where God dwelled, and she was asking the Lord. And Eli saw her and said, as a man of God is an authority, wearing the ephod, he said, may the Lord bless you and give you your heart's desire. She went back and got pregnant. And, received, and you know what came out of that? The prophet Samuel who was one of the greatest prophets in the entire history of Israel. She was humble to go receive from God on a pilgrimage. I think about the upper room. There were 500 people Jesus spoke to. Why was there only 120 in the upper room? Because 120 made the effort to go and pursue it, and they were in that location. There's no record of other people having this experience. What they went to the temple, they went to where God's presence was, they were seeking him in prayer, earnestly praying. The day of Pentecost comes, the power of God falls, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Those that were present at that location received from God. Now think about history bears this out. 
You remember me talking about the Red River Revival? Barton Stone was a Presbyterian minister at Cambridge, heard about it, knew James McGreedy from preaching at his Bible school. He said, well, I want to go and see what's happening at Red River. Goes there, and he sees all these people getting hit by the power of falling out and all these crazy manifestations. And Barton Stone is an extremely intelligent, educated man and a man of God in his own right. He's a Presbyterian minister, well-respected, Bible school student, graduate. He was there, but he was humble, and he saw all these manifestations and all that was happening, and he concluded this is surely a move of God because these people are truly getting saved. They're truly repenting of their sin, and then they're witnessing to other people that are truly getting saved. And he said, there's no way the devil would do this. This is God. Well, listen, when he went back home to Cane Ridge and he started talking about it, the Holy Spirit began to fall at Cane Ridge. As a matter of fact, in one, in one episode, he shows up and somebody yells for him and they go out there and hug each other and other people rush out and the power of God falls and they all collapse on the ground and the meeting continued till that night. The same Holy Spirit moving at Red River followed Barton Stone home to Cambridge. And then he said, well, we've got to do what they're doing at Red River. Let's just get some people together. Next thing you know, in 1801, in August, 25 to 30,000 people descend on Cambridge. And the power of God just explodes for seven days. Countless people got right with God. It was an incredible move of God. And it spread back where people came from. And they begin to have incredible moves of God. And then, of course, it's our second great awakening. But the point is, Barton Stone was humble and hungry enough to go to Red River and receive what God was doing. And because he did, it followed him back to his home church. I remember kind of a funny story about that. During the 90s revivals, I would go receive wherever God was moving. I went to the Benny Hinn meetings, Rodney Howard Brown meetings, Brownsville, anything like Toronto. Really, my first encounter, I stumbled upon it. Claudio from the Argentine Revival was ministering in South Dallas, and I didn't even know, but I was there in the meetings and went down and got prayer, and God really touched me. But I remember that I was ministering on a regular basis at this home for teens, and I mean, they were really, God was moving. I mean, they were getting saved. Uh, they were people delivered from demon spirits. They were people that were healed, inner healing, physical miracles, uh, people baptized in the Holy Spirit. I remember one Baptist girl said, Brother, I don't know about all this. I've been taught, you know how it is. I've been taught this, it of God. And I said, well, I'll tell you what you do. Her name was Jamie. I said, why don't you, I'm not even going to touch you. Why don't you just say, Jesus, if this is you, I want it. She said, okay, Jesus, if this is who, she fell backwards speaking in tongues. I had some funny stories at this place. One girl, I was just going through praying for people and minding my business. And I kept seeing, that I was getting this weird eyeball look, you know. Somebody's like eyeballing me across the room. And I noticed over time, if I was on this side of the room, she was on the exact opposite corner, the furthest location from me possible. Everywhere I go, and I kept, it was just weird. I was like, you know, because she'd be way over there, and I'd go over here, and then she'd way over here. And uh, finally, at some point, she decides she's going to come up and get prayer. And she says, Brother Scott, pray for me, but I'm not falling down. I said, well, nobody's making you fall down or anything like that. Just whatever God wants to do. I didn't like her attitude. But anyway, so I just simply prayed for her. And she fell out hard. <laughs> she, she was there after the meeting. They had to carry her out like a sack of potatoes. It was hilarious. So you never know. There's a tremendous move of God. But here's, here's the funny story I was going to tell. So I remember I had went to this Rodney Howard Brown meeting and got prayer during this time. And then the next time I came to minister there, I had forgotten about that. I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about my sermon. And I was sharing, I just opened the Bible and just preached the word. It was about getting things right with Jesus. If you need healing, God will heal you. If you need to be delivered, God will deliver you. And receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I just preached the word, prayed with them. The next thing you know is I'm praying for people. They're getting hit by the power. All this is happening. I started hearing this noise. I started noticing people are cackling and giggling and laughing behind me. The joy broke out. And I realized I, I hadn't said one word about the joy but I had received that fresh impartation at Brother Rodney's meetings, and without me saying a word about it or making any effort whatsoever, 
the joy was breaking out behind me among these people. And these, you got to understand, these were troubled kids that got in enough trouble that their parents sent them to a special home. These are unchurched young people. They had never even seen this before. Does this make sense? And so the good thing is, is they're not ruined by dead religion in churches that told them, preached against it. But at the same time, you can't say that anybody influenced that. These things were just happening because God was doing it. So this is how I want to close this out. Two points I need to make. There's something about spiritual lines of inheritance. There's something about the streams coming together. And that's what Brother Ralph told me. One of the things he said to me was, Pastor Scott, he said, I really feel like, because in these powerful meetings at this conference, you had like the deep move of God about like repentance and deep prayer, deep intercession. But then you also had the spontaneous outbreak of the joy and the, the drunkenness of Pentecost and all that. Remember the scripture says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. Well, that's real, <laughs> you know. Day of Pentecost, they thought they were drunk. Well, anyway, I mean, the, and so Brother Ralph told me, he said, you know, he said, it seemed kind of like Brownsville and Toronto kind of came together, those streams. And I would say this is exactly what it felt like. So there's streams that come together. Lines of inheritance, the coming together of different moves of God. Lila used to preach cross-pollination, is what she called it. Wrote a book about it. That different moves of God receiving from each other, and it's increasing exponentially, the move of the Holy Spirit. And it's true. So what about in your life on the other side of this conference? I'm just going to give you a couple things. The first thing I would give you is Paul's advice to Timothy when he said in 2 Timothy 1.6, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you by the laying on of hands. See, things, if you don't keep it stirred up, Satan wants to let it die down. Did y'all catch that? How many of you guys have ever been camping before and had a campfire? Here you are roasting your marshmallows and you're making your s'mores, right? Then what happens overnight? If you sleep out there, the fire dies down. You wake up in the morning and it looks kind of like a gray-white ash, but yet you don't necessarily have to start things back over. You just get some kind of a metal poker or some kind of a long stick and you start stirring that back up, blow on it, put some more wood. Next thing you know, the fire is burning bright again. Stir up what's in you. You have received a lot more than what you probably realize. You guys have had some very anointed people lay hands on you. And there's lines of inheritance. There's different streams from the Argentine Revival, Brownsville, Toronto, different uh, ministries like Reinhard Bonnke, Benny Hitt, several others. There's been an impartation that has come into this place and into your lives. And it's different streams coming together, different lines of inheritance. It's our responsibility to keep that stirred up. And I think about, and under the law of Moses, when the, the priesthood under Aaron was instituted, Moses told Aaron, he said, the Lord says, you don't let the fire die. You, put, you remember the story? They put the wood and all that, and God sent a holy fire and lit the initial fire in the bronze altar. But Moses told them, it's your responsibility every day to take the ashes out of the bottom and go dispose of it in a clean place, add wood, and you perpetually keep the fire burning. If it goes out, it's your fault, and it's a sin. Don't let the fire die. Lena Ravenhill is famous for saying, if the fire dies in you, God didn't die. <laughs> so how do we stoke that up? How do we keep the fire burning bright in our lives? Well, I would say a couple things I'm going to get to under disciplines here in a moment. The next advice I would give you is 1 Timothy 1.18. Paul told Timothy, this command I commit to you, my son Timothy, according to the prophecies. Everybody say, prophecies 
that were previously given to you, that by them you may fight a good fight. How many have had genuine prophetic words that's spoken over you that you know that that was really the Lord? It was God. That was the Lord. I have. There's a lot of prophecies. There's a lot of things people say. I don't take everything to heart. I would say there's a lot of things that aren't true. But I know that there's some words that God's given me that were the word of the Lord. And I pray about that here in River of Life. I believe if you got a word here from somebody that I've had preach, you can take it to the bank. But I'm going to tell you, we've had words over our lives, just like Timothy. And Paul doesn't say what they were. What did, what did they prophesy over Timothy? That you would see a certain harvest of souls or you would pastor a certain revival or this would happen or that? What were the prophecies? We don't know. But we do know that when the eldership laid hands on him, there was an impartation into him for his destiny, and there were prophetic words. And what basically that means is this. When he was set forth in the ministry, God gave him words that were connected to his destiny and put the anointing on him to see it happen. And Paul told Timothy two things. He said, you better stir it up in you. When they laid hands on you, there was an impartation, but you better stir it up. And he said, also, you better keep recalling the prophecies over you because God's wanting to do them, but you better pray into them and wage a good war, meaning that the devil's going to try to stop those things. You fight the fight of faith, and you persist all the way through to seeing it happen. Sometimes we read over these scriptures and we really don't break them down and really look at them the way we need to. As I remember one time years ago, I was probably maybe 21 to 23, but I had really received an impartation in my life from different sources. I mean, God really touched me. And, and I was very young, though. I got saved in 95, so I was just, you know, I was still very young in the ministry. I was still very young in the Lord. And this man of God was prophesying over me, and he said, I see that there's, there's this, been a strong anointing come into your life. But he said this, he said, listen, you are not mature yet, but don't worry, that anointing will mature you. It will take you to a place of strength. Hello? And God had to begin that in my life. I mean, when that fire came into my life, it was wonderful, but it was also horrible at the same time. And let me tell you why. Because God began to burn out all the junk out of me. And there was a lot to be burned out. And God had to begin to deal with my flesh. I didn't know. I had to learn how do you die to the flesh. And then God after that, and that took a little while to, and then after that, God began to teach me about renewing my mind. And all this time, here I am just trying to live for the Lord, but I got all kinds of problems, all kinds of, of imperfections and flaws. And here's the thing about that fire. It's going to cause all that to come up to be dealt with. We all want the fire, but do we really want the baptism fire? Do we want the type of fire Ralph preached on where you just go ahead and climb on the altar and say, Lord, burn it out of me. I'm a living sacrifice. Do we want that kind of fire, see? And that fire began to teach me how to renew my mind and discipline my thoughts and overcome the sins that I'd come out of. Those, you know, those things have power over you. How many, when you first got saved, um, there were still some things that followed you? Yeah, me too. And so God had to let that fire begin to burn it out of me. And he began to also deal with things generationally that were in bloodlines and things I had struggled with. God began to purge all that out, and he took me from glory to glory. It took years, but he really cleaned me up and changed me. Not that I'm even close to being perfect now, but I'm a lot better off today than I was back then, trust me. But that fire will burn out everything. It's still burning it out of us right now. It'll burn out the worldliness. It'll burn out your carnality, all, all of your old stinking ways of, of, of the way you used to talk. You know, when I first got saved, I wasn't very sanctified. I gave my life to the Lord in 95, and I remember this guy made me mad, and I cussed him out. He got scared because I was going to beat him up, and I meant it. And God had to deal with me about that stuff. It's like, I'm sanctifying, I'm cleaning this. I got to get this out of you so I can use you. I remember my wife tells the story, and she didn't even know. I mean, this is the amazing thing about the Holy Spirit. She got saved, 
and didn't know she had zero knowledge of Christianity. Understand, zero biblical knowledge. Never went to church. But yet now that she accepted the Lord and the Holy Spirit entered inside of her, she began to feel guilty about things that she never even thought was wrong before. I need to give this up. I need to quit this. And she said when, you know, Brother Chalmer let her come there and stay with him, that saved her life. I don't believe she'd be here today. But she was there, and, and she was still, you know, she was a new Christian, and she was still struggling smoking. And um, the Lord put on her heart to give her last bit of cigarette money. How many knows when you're, when you're a smoker, giving up your cigarette money is a big deal? And the offering. So she's all like, oh, man, you know. And she says she took it out and threw it in the offering. And as it went by, she thought, what have I done? <laughs> but she said, after that, this is the miracle. You ready? After that happened, she had smoked for years, addicted. That power of that addiction broke. She was delivered from it, and she never smoked again after she threw the money in the offering plate. That's a true story. But the fact that she even felt guilty about it and she needed to quit this smoking was the Holy Spirit in her. And Brother Chalmer and them laying hands on you and praying over you. And when they prayed with her, she was delivered from demonic stuff. Chalmer told me about it, and she was baptized in the Holy Ghost. Isn't that awesome? So God began a work in her life of cleaning up all the old junk, and the Holy Spirit began to move in her life. And that impartation that came into her life from Brother Chalmer, and I think about Brother Holt. What a blessing he's been to all of us. You know, but her receiving prayer from him, laying on of hands in those powerful Pentecostal uh, meetings that they I mean, Brother Holt told stories that are just phenomenal. He said there was a time in that church that the Holy Spirit fell, and he's on the platform, and he was just up here like this, and the power of God hit, and he looked out, and people just collapsed in that place under the power of God. Man. See how far the church has fallen from that. We've got to have the power of God in our meetings. I'm going to tell you, a lot of the things that's going on, this is something I, I, I need to be careful. Let me say something here. I am really concerned about rebellion. We got a little bit more time. Y'all work with me a little bit longer here. My generation telling us that God said, this is wrong, you need to quit it, or you need to do this, I'm just okay with that. You don't have to give me 10, 15, 20 reasons why I need to obey God. Just the fact that God said you need to stop doing this or start doing this, that's enough for me. I don't have to have reasons to why, well, maybe I'll consider obeying God. I'll think about it. As long as it's going to be, what's the positive end to this? How is this going to be good for me? And then if you can talk them into it, then they'll obey God because it's really about their narcissistic little self, you see. But that wasn't my generation. I mean, maybe I was raised a certain way. This guy today cracked me up. He said, we didn't have time out growing up. We had knocked you out. <laughs> maybe... Maybe that was, I don't know. But I mean, my generation, it, it's different now. Let me tell you where I'm going with this. That made me laugh very hard when you said But the reason I, I'm saying that is because I was reading on this guy's Facebook post. And the more I'm on Facebook, the more I realize I probably just need to stay off Facebook. Amen. But, but this guy was saying, now he's, he's been a minister. And what he was saying wasn't necessarily wrong. But what I'm saying is the fact that he had to say it the way he was saying it is scary. He was telling people, he said, listen, I'm taking my family to church, and you Christians out there, you need to go to church. And let me give you the 10, 15 reasons why it's beneficial for you to go to church. And there's nothing wrong with that. And then he gave the, the 10 reasons why if you didn't go, it was bad. The problem is with this is there's nothing wrong with what he said. The problem is that for me, God telling me, don't forsake assembling yourselves together. That's enough for me. I'm not rebellious. How many else feel this way? Come on, am I alone in this? I don't need you to give me 10, 15 reasons why I need to obey God. 
But there's a generation right now that this is very concerning to me. Like they need to be talked into it or something. And I'll tell you something else that's very scary in this area is the entitlement mentality. Let me explain that. See, when I was growing up, we were taught that you, you earn, you work and earn things. But see, there's a generation now that's been told, hear what I'm saying? They've been told, well, you deserve this. You deserve that. You're entitled to this. You're entitled to that. Give everybody a trophy, even if they lose. Well, guess what now's happened? We got a generation coming up that thinks people just should give them something just because they're here. They're entitled to it and they deserve it. I'll tell you what we all deserve. You ready? We deserve that we spend eternity in hell and God shows no mercy. That's what we deserve. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God, you know what? I don't feel a sense of entitlement. I feel a sense of thankfulness about what God's done in my life. 1 John 2, 27, John said, As for you, the anointing which you have received from him remains in you. How many knows that there's an anointing that's in you through the laying on of hands? And he said this, You have no need for anyone to even teach you. Not that we don't need teachers, because we do. God wouldn't have given us the fivefold ministry. But he's saying that you don't even need teachers. Why? Because his anointing, teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie just as it is taught you remain in him so the anointing in you will teach you and that's what jesus said in john was it 14 i believe through 16 he said it's good that i go the holy spirit will come and when he comes he will lead you in all truth he will even bring to your remembrance the things i've taught you and he will even show you things to come But the anointing, did you ever think about these scriptures? The anointing that's in you will actually teach you. So it's our responsibility that now there's something in us that we stir it up and that we begin to seek the Lord. Now listen, praying in tongues, this stirs up, man, this stirs, building up your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Paul said, I pray in tongues more than you all. There's something about uttering mysteries and praying the perfect will of God. There's a stirring up as we pray in tongues. Now, let me encourage you. Here's the disciplines. This is so important what I'm saying, but this is where the rubber meets the road. This is what separates the men from the boys. You ready? The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved by God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing word of truth. We have to have some discipline in us that we are going to make time to pray on a daily basis. And this is something that I was just big on in my personal life. And when Sandy and I got married, I talked to her about it. She had read the word daily and stuff like that, but I said, no, you need to have a personal prayer life. Taught her how to pray. Now she prays on her own. Taught Brianna that her whole life. I said, there's no such thing as I don't have time to pray if you have time to watch TV. Don't give me that because I could say the same thing to myself, and I'm preaching myself too. If I've got time to do other stuff I want to do, I've got time for God. And so I raised Brianna with the mentality, every day set aside some time to pray. It, whenever you need to do it, morning is good. Evening is okay, but you need to pray. And so to this day, Brianna's grown, married, has kids, and she always, I hear her on almost a daily basis, well, Dad, I got to go have my prayer time. You understand what I'm saying? The discipline that we ourselves make time to pray on a daily basis and also time to read the Word. And that's how God began to really speak to me. How many want to hear God's voice? You say, Pastor Scott... I want God to be able to speak to me. Let me tell you how God taught me first. This is 20 years ago, but God taught me this, and now I know his voice. What I did was I would open my Bible in prayer, and I would ask God to show me something. I would ask him to speak to me, and he would begin to guide me. He would lead me to read certain things in the Bible, and as I read it, things would pop out. I may have had things pop out at you, and I would journal those things. And God began to speak to me about things I was reading 
He's going to use his word to speak to you. Understand? And then pretty soon over time, as this developed and kept developing, God could even give me like a chapter and verse. And I would flip there and sure enough, he would speak to me. And sometimes God would speak to me a scripture and I would know it and then I'd have to find it. And as I went to it, then he spoke to me and all this unfolding revelation would come. But it came out of me opening my Bible and God beginning to speak to me about things out of the word of God. So that's how God began to speak to me. But it comes out of personal prayer. It comes out of our time in the word of God. And I'm telling you, it comes out of tongues. I try to spend every day, I try. Sometimes I legitimately don't have the time. But I try to spend time praying in tongues before I even get into prayer. John Davis really speaks into my life. And he's like, out there, he's, I've devoted myself to prayer. I devoted this land to prayer. And he's out there on his, his acreage he has out there in the uh, Branson uh, in the sticks, you know. He lives out in the country. And he's out there and he says, I'll pray in tongues. I'll pray in the spirit for a while, an hour or two. Then as I really get sensitive and tap into the Lord, then I'll begin to pray about other things. We can learn from that. You hear what I'm saying? So let me give you, while I'm on this, for those that maybe say, Pastor, I want to learn how to pray. The first thing I would tell you is come through the blood. Maybe take communion if you want to. I do that. But come through the blood. Reverence the blood. Confess your sin. Can you all leave that open if possible, please? Confess your sin. Come under the blood. Get saturated in the blood. Reverence the blood. It's through the blood. Everybody say the blood. That you'll be able to enter the most holy place by the blood. And then worship. Hallowed be your name. You begin to worship him and hallow his name. I don't know that I fully understand. There's something about hallowing the name and some of these things that I say out of my mouth that I feel the atmosphere shift. But in that time, here I am, I'm, I'm coming through the blood and I say, Lord, I hallow your name, Jehovah Jireh, but in Hebrew, Yahweh Yireh, the provider who has made us a people of blood covenant. We overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. I thank you, Lord, Yahweh Makadesh Sikenu, that you have justified, sanctified us, made us holy by the blood. I come through the blood and I hallow your name. And as I begin to pray that way, I feel I'm entering the Lord's presence. By the blood, hallowing his name, worship. And then you begin to pray about things that need to be prayed about. I would also give people advice, disciplines, not only pray and read the word, but stay faithful to God's house. If you think that you can go out there and get out of church and do this on your own, you're sadly mistaken. What happens to the little antelope that leaves the flock? Anybody ever watched the Nature Channel? What happens to them? We all know the lion eats them. We need God's house. And I've noticed as people come into God's house here and they've been dry, it's been difficult. Maybe they've been out of church for a little bit. They come in, what happens? You feel like you just got just filled with the Spirit, baptized in fire, refreshed, strengthened. How many have felt that? I have personally felt that as the pastor. Sometimes I've gone through warfare, come in here and just feel so refreshed. Be faithful as givers. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but tithes and offerings, it's important to God. And be faithful doing what God's called you to do. And I'm not just talking about fivefold ministry stuff and operating in the gifts. But those that God's called you to be out witnessing with touching hearts, be faithful. Those that God's called you uh, to be on the worship team or to be intercessors, etc. all the different things that we're doing, God's put on people's hearts to do things as you're faithful doing those things. Here's my point. There's times that you may not feel like praying. There's times that you don't feel like reading the word. And there may be times you don't feel like coming to church. Those are the devil trying to hinder you right there. You do it anyway, and you'll keep the fire stoked up in your life. I remember this guy told me one time, there was a powerful explosion of the Holy Spirit in that service that night at this church we were at. And one of my friends told me, he said, man, he said, I was sitting in the chair at home. He said, I just absolutely did not feel like coming. Something just, you know what that was? The devil trying to keep him out. He said, I did not feel like coming at all, but thank God when we do it anyway. Let me tell you, sometimes the greatest moves of God will be when you don't feel like it, but you press in anyway. 
And I, I need to close with this. When it's time. Listen, there's a fullness of time. God's imparted to us. And as we keep stoking that in our lives by having disciplined prayer lives, discipline in the word, we're staying in God's house. We've determined that no matter what the devil's gonna do, I am going to be faithful. I'm gonna keep moving forward. I'm gonna keep the fire burning in me. I don't care what hell throws against me. I am going to keep the fire burning in my life. As we do that, everybody's doing that. There will come a fullness of time when God says, I see faithfulness and I'm about to fulfill destiny. And when that comes, God's eye was on Gideon from birth because we know the story. Jeremiah, I called you from birth. We know the gift and callings are without repentance. It's something that from birth, there's a calling on us. We don't know it, but God has his eye on us, his hand on us. It's no accident that you're in this room at this time. God knew it when you were in the womb. You didn't know it. God knew it. Our destiny, you see, but when it comes to the fullness of time, here's what happens. God had appeared to Gideon through an angel and told him to do this, that, and the other. When Gideon dealt with the sin in his family, when Gideon had to lay out his fleeces, all that Gideon had to do, when it was now time for God to fulfill Gideon's destiny, here's what happened, ready? But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with himself and took possession of him, and he blew the shofar. Judges 6.34. That's the Amplified Classic right there. It says, But the Spirit of the Lord came upon and clothed Gideon and took possession of him, and he blew the shofar. And then the clan of Abiezar gathered unto him. That was his family. When it's the fullness of time, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the right people will be gathered unto you. You know, I hate it. I wish that we didn't have to lose some people along the journey. But we've lost some people as we went from Gilgal to Bethel. We've lost some people as we went from Bethel to Jericho. And we've lost some people from Jericho to the Jordan. But nonetheless, I'm telling you, when it's the fullness of time, the right people will be gathered unto you. And the Holy Spirit will clothe you in power to do what God's called you to do. I believe what's been imparted to us is coming to a fullness. I believe there's also at the same time like a fresh anointing. And I believe that the right people are being gathered together at the right time. There's a group of people here in River of Life. I don't have to try to talk you into obeying God. You're not a bunch of rebels. I don't have to deal with a bunch of grumbling and complaining. People are thankful for what God's done in your life. God's gathered the right people a people of prayer, a people faithful to his house, a people that are givers. And you know what? God can come down in this place like historic revivals. There's no telling what God can do. God can open up a harvest. God can part the waters. Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Where's the God of historic revivals? I think about Elisha. Grab the mantle. Where's the God of the Cambridge revival? Where's the God of the Brownsville revival? Where's the God that we read about in days of old that came down and shook communities? He's the same God today as we strike the waters and say, where's the Lord, the God of Elijah? May the, may the Lord, the God of Elijah, clothe us and may the Spirit of the Lord gather in a harvest and let's see the power of God come down and do something. So Lord, we thank you tonight for this sermon. We thank you for your word. Let it burn in us and never be the same. In Jesus' name. And go ahead and start.